If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We took a little of extended pause to do a sermon series on community this summer, but we're back into our series now in the book of Matthew. And there are times when gain comes from loss. Gain comes from loss and success from great sacrifice. Uh, European history provides one example of this. When Julius Caesar landed on the shores of Britain with the Roman legions. You see, he took a bold and decisive step to ensure the success of his military venture, ordering his men as they marched to halt on the edge of the cliffs of Dover. He commanded them to look down at the water below. And as they did, as they looked over the cliff down to where their boats had been, To their amazement, they saw every ship in which they had crossed the channel engulfed in flames. Caesar had deliberately cut off any possibility of retreat so that his soldiers were united and purely focused on the goal that lie before them. Caesar and his men sacrificed what they had for the accomplishment of a greater goal. And and this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 16, we're going to see that Jesus and his followers are called to the same thing. Not not for merely political or military, military claim but for the accomplishment of something much, much greater. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28, and then we'll pray, and we're also going to pray for for John and CB and Mario and Jen in that same prayer. So, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. This is the perfect word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, Until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your grace and mercy to CB and John this week. And being with Mario and Jen, we thank You for the blessing they have been to them. The encouragement they have been to them. The blessing they have been to unbelievers and believers alike. Thank You, Lord, for the opportunities and thank you for how you've used those men to proclaim Christ to the nations, Lord. We pray, Lord, as they return to us for safe travels and we pray, Lord, for Mario and Jen as they leave, Lord. I am sure that will be a challenging moment for Mario and Jen because they love us. They love those two. And and Lord, I pray that for Mario and Jen that they would know that even though we depart that you remain. And that they would find their hope, their their refuge, Lord, in you. And Lord, we pray now for us that you would encourage us in your word, that you would help us to see 
The beauty of the cross. The pain of the cross. The sacrifice in following you, but also the great joy in following you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big truth for this morning is that Jesus has come to give up his life. And as his disciples, we are to follow him in doing the same. Jesus has come to give up his life. And his disciples, as his disciples, we are to follow him in doing the same. Three points this morning. As we just work our way through this passage, point number one, Jesus must take up his cross. Jesus must take up his cross. This morning, as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, we come to a turning point moment in the ministry of Jesus towards his disciples. Last week we saw where Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ the son of the living God. Peter Peter rightly identifies Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who God has promised. God told us about this Messiah. He told us about this Savior way back in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve fell into sin. And he continued to speak about this Messiah through the Old Testament prophets. God's people had been waiting a very long time for their Messiah. There was great anticipation for his coming because of who he would be and what he would do for his people. And Peter joyfully confesses that Jesus is the one they had been waiting for. And Jesus affirms Peter's words to be true. Church, don't ever believe anyone who says Jesus didn't believe he was the Messiah or didn't believe he was fully God. Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, to be the son of the living God, one who is the exact nature of God because he is God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for the father has revealed this to you. Peter's profession of Jesus is a significant moment. And in response to this profession, Jesus shares with his disciples with even greater clarity what it will mean for him to fulfill his mission as Messiah. Look at verse 21 there with me. We see that turning point phrase. From that time, Jesus began. From from this moment on, with greater clarity, greater detail, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in church, I want to specifically highlight the word must. In verse 21, it says, Jesus must go. He does not say he will go, but that he must go. This is not a forecast by Jesus. Jesus here is not observing the way the religious leaders are talking about him and treating him and, and suggesting based on current trends that it, you know, it, it seems likely that that all of this is going to end with me being killed by them. No, no, Jesus is fully committed to going and is sure that what he is sharing here with the disciples will be the outcome. Jesus must go to Jerusalem because his death and resurrection are essential in God's redemptive plan, which was planned and put forward before the ages began. In God's economy, The only way a sinful group of people could ever be forgiven would be through God himself coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for sin in our place. If you don't think sin is a big deal today, if you would say, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but look at what it takes to be forgiven. God himself had to come and live and die that there might be any hope for any of us. Jesus must go to Jerusalem because that is what his father called him to do. And it was his joy to obey. And he must go to Jerusalem because there's no way any person can be saved without that death. Why don't we ever want to move on from singing about, talking about, 
growing deeper in our amazement of the cross of Christ? Why do we keep talking about it? At Emily and Kevin's wedding yesterday, why was the gospel on center display? Because it's the only hope any of us have. It's the only hope of that marriage that started yesterday. It's the only hope for you, whether whatever season of life you're in. We're not going to stop talking about it because it's the only hope of rescue. You know, the majority of us take what is happening here with Jesus and Peter in stride. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Jesus responds by sharing that he's right and the mission of Christ is to suffer and die. And because most of us know the end of the story, we just kind of take it as a matter of course. Right, that's what, that's what Jesus is going to do. That's, yeah, he said that because that's what's going to happen. But we must realize this morning that for the disciples, these words would have been shocking and unthinkable. The Messiah is headed towards Jerusalem. The one we've been waiting for, the one that we've been anticipating for all these years is is here and he's going to Jerusalem where he's going to be killed. And the Jewish people read the Old Testament passages about the Messiah and they rightly saw that he was going to be victorious in defeating the enemies of God. That he would bring a kingdom of God to earth and rule as Lord over all. They were right in seeing that because that's there. But then they extrapolated it out to think it would be politically. Rome harshly ruled over them and they anticipated that their Messiah, when he came, was going to throw off that oppression. And the oppression of any other nation. And that the Christ would reestablish the power and the independence of Israel. When Jesus began by saying that he must go to Jerusalem, we would be right to assume that Peter and the other disciples were nodding their heads in approval. Yes. Yes, the Messiah has come and he's going to go to Jerusalem, the seat of power. Jesus, take what is rightly yours, even by force if necessary. They knew the Messiah would come in power and Jesus, through the miraculous signs and wonders, had showed he was just that. But then Jesus continued. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Suffering at the hands of the religious leaders. So great it would lead to death. And again, Peter speaks. Look at verse 22. Again, Peter speaks. Peter takes Jesus aside. He doesn't shout out what he's thinking in front of all the other disciples. He he grabs him by the arm, takes him to a place where they can talk. Peter is shocked, upset, bewildered by what Jesus just said. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's telling Jesus, the one he just called the Christ, you're wrong. What you say is going to happen is wrong. You're the Messiah. The Messiah is not going to die at the hands of the leaders of Israel. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I don't know how that lands on you. Get behind me, Satan. That that might sound too strong at first, right? I mean, Peter just said you're the Christ. And now you're saying, get behind me, Satan. And yet, church, when we're reminded of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we realize those words are only too appropriate. We see in Matthew 4, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and the devil begins to tempt him. First, challenging Jesus to make bread out of stones. Show your power! Make these stones turn into bread. And then baiting Jesus to throw himself down off the pinnacle to see if his angels will will rescue him. Then in verse 8 of Matthew 4, and this is the one that really connects to Peter's words, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Church, do you see the connection? In both Satan and Peter's words, they place in front of Jesus a crossless path to power. A crossless path to power. The devil gives Jesus the option, be Lord over all. 
just without the sacrifice. And Peter is encouraging him to do the same. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. Yeah, let's go to Jerusalem, but let's also avoid the cross. Stay away from any path that leads to suffering and death by the hand of religious leaders. The encouragement of Satan and the encouragement of Peter are the same. And yet to do so would be to go against the Father and commit the greatest act of treason ever. Jesus came to fulfill the plans of the Father. And although it was his joy to obey, it was not easy to obey. We see in the scriptures, Jesus is fully God, and yet he's also fully man. And he was tempted in every way like we were, yet without sin. Jesus faced real temptation on earth. And so when the devil tempts him to passionately take all of this, it can all be yours, just worship me, Jesus responds in Matthew 4, 9 by saying, Go away, Satan! Get out of here! And in Peter's words in 16.22, he passionately responds in a similar way. Get behind me, Satan, because Peter was tempting Jesus in a similar way. Again, Jesus loved to obey the Father. There was joy in that obedience, but he knew what he was doing. I mean, Jesus understands both beforehand, during, and after what happened on the cross in a way we'll never be able to get to the depths of. Jesus knew what he was doing. He, he wasn't on the cross to simply be a good example. Jesus went on the cross to take the wrath of everyone who would ever repent and trust in Christ. He knew that was coming. Joyful obedience, yes. Temptation towards the gravity of that moment, of what it represented, yes. This was no light thing. This was not an easy thing for Jesus to ponder. We see that in the garden before he gets cat, before he is arrested. And although Jesus proved himself righteous and faithful to the Father, these temptations were real. And church, if we could apply this to our lives. May this interaction between Jesus and Peter, if we just kind of turn the lens and look at Peter for a moment, May we think about how we respond to the plans of God towards us. Do you and I believe this morning that God knows best? That his plans are best? That we can trust him because he knows all. He knows everything that ever was and knows everything that ever will be. Do you believe that this morning? Do I believe that this morning? You might look at Peter's attempts to rebuke Jesus and think, Peter, how could you be so arrogant? How could, how could you be so right one moment and so wrong the next? What is, what is your deal, Peter? How, how could you? I used to think about Peter like that. But I don't anymore. Because the reality is I've done the same thing towards God. What is Peter's temptation here? It's to believe that there's no way Jesus going to Jerusalem to die could work out for good. No way this could be a part of God's plan. Peter believes what this moment needs is not him placing his trust in God, but taking the position of leadership over God. He pulls Jesus aside. Let me explain to you what we're going to do here. It's not go to the cross. It's not go to your death. In rebuking Jesus, he's telling him how things are going to go down. I wish I could say, church, I can't relate to Peter this morning, but I can. There, there have been seasons in my life where I've been tempted to think, how, how could God possibly use this for good? How could this be part of God's perfect plan? Moments in prayer when I've questioned God and what is currently happening. And honestly, moments where I subtly or sometimes not subtly say to him, I think I could do it better. Can you relate to Peter this morning? Are there things maybe right now going on in your life or things in your past and the temptation to say, how could that be good? How could you ever use that? How is this your perfect plan? Have you ever taken God aside 
and said no? Have you ever said to God, you know, I think that my direction here would be better than yours. I have. And I'm able to say that, although convicted with hope, because we serve a God that forgives. We serve a God that allows rebels to come back to him and receive pardon. May we thank God for his forgiving grace in Peter's life and thank God for his forgiving grace in our lives. If we repent of our arrogance and pride and receive fresh forgiveness and love. The the issue for Peter and for me and maybe for you is twofold. For Peter, his plans for Jesus' lordship was far too small. Right? Peter's mind was Jesus being king over the nations. Jesus didn't come to simply rule over the nations. He came to rule over men and women's hearts. Far greater plans than some political kingdom. He wanted to rescue and redeem humanity. And secondly, he needed, Peter needed to trust Jesus with the rest of the story. Yes, Jesus would die a criminal's death. He would be mocked. He would be beaten. He would be crucified on that cross. But in so doing, the captives are free. Death defeated and life given to all who would repent and trust in him. And ultimately, as we read this morning, that death would would not keep Jesus. He would rise on that third day. By the grace of God, Peter realizes as the story unfolded that Christianity without the cross is worthless. You don't want Jesus without the cross. You don't want to follow him without the cross. Because Jesus could have ruled over every nation, but if he wouldn't have died on the cross, our sin would remain. And God, in his kindness, revealed that to Peter, just as he revealed to Peter who Jesus was. And years later, 1 Peter 2.24, Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, he himself bore our sin in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Church, you know, I wish I could say that I could go into your life and say, oh, this is what God's doing, and and this is why you're going through this. That'd be a great job as a pastor, just to inform you all the things God's doing. I, I don't always know. You don't always know why, but we can trust him because he's good. And we can be certain that when we're in heaven one day and we look back, we will be able to say, the Lord of the earth does right. Everything he did in our lives, he was faithful. He was good. Romans 8, 28 is true. And, and so whatever that is for you this morning, whatever that thing is where you just think, how could God be good? How, how could he use this for good? Look no further than the cross. Through the darkest day came the greatest gift. May the cross give us a confident hope in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for good in the life of a Christian. Point number two, we must take up our cross. Point number two, we must take up our cross. I love, because God does this again and again, I want to draw your attention to it. God starts with the gospel. God starts with the cross. God starts with what he is first going to do. God does that again and again. If you read New Testament letters, don't ever just start in like chapter four, five, or six, because you missed one, two, and three. And in one, two, or three, we see God time and again set the rock of Christ, set the rock of the gospel in front of us, and then we build off of that gospel. And so again this morning, he begins with what he first is to do, but then he continues because Jesus loves his disciples. And during his earthly ministry, he was constantly modeling, teaching, training them, and through God's word, training us as he seeks to prepare his disciples for the, for the mission he's called us. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple of Christ this morning. That's the beauty of, of God's word is that Christ is ministering to us and leading us and preparing us just like them. And because of that intentionality, it's just not surprising that after sharing with his disciples with greater clarity what he's called to do, that he would go on to share with us with greater clarity what we're called to do. So look at verse 24 with me. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. I love the phrase, if anyone would come after me. 
I mean, he's talking to them, but you know he's got us in view. He's talking to the twelve, but he knows what's going to happen. He knows the generation upon generation impact of the gospel, of him rescuing and redeeming in every generation. And he's just, he's thinking about us. If anyone would come after me, I just feel like as I was reading that that this week, just the Holy Spirit's encouraging me, Ben, that's you. He's talking about you. He's thinking about you, Christian. He's thinking about you. He's talking about you here. If anyone would come after me, do you want to be a follower of Christ? Do you Are you a disciple of Christ? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And, and what is interesting is in the NASB, so that's the New American Standard Bible, um, it's a more literal word for word. So ESV and NASB, they're saying the same thing. They just sometimes use different words Sometimes more precise, sometimes words that are a little bit more used in our culture. So the NASB is just a more literal word for word. They translate it this way, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus must go to Jerusalem and we as his disciples must deny ourselves and take up his cross and follow him. We're not saying we're saved by doing these things. It's it's what those who have been saved will do. It's the fruit they will produce because of God's grace and power. And so let's just briefly take each of these. We are to deny ourselves. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, if anyone wants to follow Jesus this morning, here's what we must do. Deny ourselves. This phrase literally means to forget one's own interest. Die to yourself. You want to be a follower of Christ? It means, in a sense, your life is over. And man, do we see the radical difference here between what Christ calls us to do and what the world calls us. And honestly, what our flesh calls us to do. Christ is saying, die to you. Die to a a life of kingdom building of your own and come and follow me. You can't, Follow Christ and build your own kingdom. You must decide which are you going to do. Are you going to be a part of his kingdom or a part of your own? I've tried to explain to the teens for years now, the putting one foot in each camp is a lie. There's this belief, I can do both. I can get the joys of this world and I can get Christ. No, you can't. Because you're going in completely opposite directions. They're not that close. Christ is one direction and the world is the other. And we are called to deny ourselves. In our sin, we desire to live for us. Not to deny, but to obtain. Not to submit, but to rule. Isaiah 14, we're not going to turn there, but it it highlights Satan's desire. I want to be God. That was his great sin, right? I want to be God. I don't want to have him rule. I want to rule. That's the heart posture of Satan, and really it's the heart posture of every sin we commit as well. I want to be God. I want to rule. I want to live for me. And we see just something radically different in Jesus. Jesus did not live for himself, right? He he submitted himself in obedience to the Father, gave his life for us. And we're called to do the same. I, I love how God never calls us to stuff that he himself has been signed up for. God's not on his throne. Drinking hand. Kind of looking around. Serve me. Sacrifice for me. I won't do any of that for you, but, but you should do that for me. Christ, even though we don't deserve it, has sacrificed his very self for us in obedience to the Father. And he says, Come and do the same. To be a Christian means to renounce a life of self-seeking. To say to God and ourselves that we will be willing to place our lives and the building of our kingdom on the altar so that we can live for Him and His kingdom. What does that look like for you to deny yourself? What does it look like this morning to renounce a life of self-seeking? What does it look like today for you to turn away from the building of your own kingdom to be a part of the building of his? What does that look like for you? Second, we see, take up your cross. Take up your cross. In this phrase, Jesus 
is teaching that, that following him isn't simply the call to move away from something, but it's to move towards something. To deny yourself is to avoid something, to not get something, to say, I won't, I won't live that life anymore, but to take up your cross is a action step towards Jesus in church. It's really important for us to understand that, like, Christian cultures uh, distorted this a bit. Distorted this phrase a little bit. You might hear people sometimes saying that kind of the trials that are coming towards them, the suffering that they're facing, uh, that, that those are their crosses to bear. That's not what the scripture means here. The, the implication of a comment of like that, of my crosses to bear, it sounds like it's just something you have to deal with. I'm dealing with these things. I'm just kind of just, I'm, I'm living in light of them and just kind of surviving. That's not what Christ is saying here. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He went to the cross proactively. He, it didn't, didn't happen to him. He did it. He, he went on the cross. Yes, they were mobilizing against him and they were doing the very things he wanted them and allowed them to do. And in the same way, to take up your cross is a proactive action step. It's to move towards the kingdom. It's to move towards people. It's to say, okay, I'm not going to live my life for myself. Church, there's still stuff in your hands, right? If I'm not going to build my own kingdom, I've been given all these kind of supplies by God. I've been given time. I've been given money. I've been given gifting. I've been given breath. I've been, just, I've been given all this stuff by God. And it's to say... Not drop that stuff and just kind of stand motionless and look at God. It's to say, okay, God, you've given me this. Whatever this is, how do I use it for your glory? Christian author Daniel Dorini writes the following. We bear the cross when we care for the sick, comfort the afflicted, give sacrificially to the poor, Or share Christ with someone who may reject the message and despise the messenger. To bear the cross is to face the loss of anything that may be precious to us. Our money, our comfort, our time, our relationships. I just love how God's word speaks to all of life. So last time I was up here, one of the things we talked about was rest. That you don't have to say yes to everything you're asked to do. That's true. And yet God's word also says, be all in. Say no to the things God doesn't want you to be a part of, even if they're good things. But the things God has called you to, all in. God, my life is fully yours. That doesn't mean I have to be going at breakneck pace all the time. But man, when it's the things of God, it's the things God has said, Ben, this is what I want you to do. I want to take up my cross. What is that for you? What does it look like for you? Not to earn something but is simply a follower of Christ because of what we'll see in just a few moments at the end of this passage. What does it look like for you to take up your cross and proactively move towards the lost and towards the church and towards your family? What does it look like for you to go hard after Christ and the things of this kingdom? Essentially, taking up our cross means accepting whatever God has given us and then offering it back to him. It means, to, to, by God's grace, move towards Romans 12.1, which tells us by the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Remember, Jesus held nothing back. Jesus gave up everything for the Father and us And we as his disciples get to go and do likewise. The last part of this, Jesus says, follow me. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Follow me. (laughs) Where Where are we going, Jesus? Follow me. Here I am in Reading, Pennsylvania. Didn't see this one coming. Follow me. You might be in a, in a season of life. Maybe it's not your favorite season of life. Man, if you're following Jesus, it's the perfect place to be. Challenges, struggles, but man, if you can say I'm following Jesus, isn't it worth it? And to constantly be asking the question, what does it mean to follow you, Jesus? What does it mean to follow you? 
Well, we know in the general what that means. It means to, to believe what he says about himself, to obey what he says by the grace of God and the will of, in the spirit of God, to, to submit ourselves fully to his plans. We, we are tempted to compartmentalize, right? The temptation is to say, well, this is the God part of my life, and this is the work part of my life, and this is the money part of my life, and this is the hobby part of my life. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm Lord over all. Give it all to me. Follow me with your money. Follow me with your job. Follow me with your hobbies. Follow me, yes, with you and the church, but it's all under the umbrella of Christ. It's all under the umbrella of lordship. I'm going to lie to you, Josiah, and go in a different order. So I'm sorry. But Dr. James Boyce says, following Christ is not simply a door to be entered, but a path to be followed. Following Christ is not simply a door to be entered, but a path to be followed. I love that because it's not... Being a Christian is this one-time decision that you make, and, and you make it, and then you're, now you're a Christian, and then you can go on with the rest of your life, never thinking about Christ ever again. Now, the, the Christian life is daily. We see that in the other Gospels, with that phrase, pick up your cross daily, follow Jesus daily, every single day. Ben Ross is to say, God, what do you want with my life? What does it mean to follow you today? There are very, very, there are very few big moments in our life, right? I mean, there are moments where New job, new geographic position, uh, college, marriage. I mean, there, there are some sizable moments in our life, and we should apply this to those. But we got to go more pervasive than that, because that—that's what ten, eleven, twelve big moments. Just this afternoon, am I going to follow Jesus tonight? Are you going to follow Jesus tomorrow morning when you wake up? Are you going to follow Jesus? There's all these small moments that we miss if we think it's only the big moments. And it is the big moments. And and may we submit those moments to God. What about all the small moments? Jesus says, follow me. Do you and I understand Christianity to be a call to follow Jesus in this way? To deny ourselves, to take up our cross. There are sadly so many in our country that do not. That they believe that following Jesus is like whatever kind of is left over in my life. I, I can spare a couple hours a week. God, here, you can have that. I got, I got some money here lying around. You can take that. I, you know, I, I spend the majority of my time and my gifting on myself, but there, there's some, there's some extra. Yeah, you can have, you can have that. Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of you. J.C. Ryle, he's a 19th century pastor, says, the following. He says, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. If that was true in the 19th century, how much more true is it of the 21st century? We want it all. We want it now. And we want it as little cost as possible. And Jesus says, no. no. I'm God and I want it all. I want you to die to yourself completely. I want you to completely renounce a life of following this world. I want you to follow me. Church, Jesus makes clear that the, the cost is high to follow him. I mean, you, you can't read this and really apply it and be like, oh, okay, let's move on with the rest of my day. And this is Serious, significant, change your life kind of stuff. And as the way I'm wired, I think I always kind of respond with questions. That's, that's why when I read the book of Romans, I was so blessed because I'd have these questions and Paul then would say, so does that mean? And I'd be like, that's what I was asking. And then he'd go on to answer it. If you've never read the book of Romans, man, if you're analytical, if you have questions about Christianity, oh, that's the book for you. It's, well, does it mean this? And Peter just, or Paul's right there on the spot. Paul, hey, thanks for asking that question. Here you go. And so here's my question as I look at this and I hear what Jesus is saying. Is it worth it? Okay, you, you can't put one foot here and one foot here. To follow Christ means all in, all your life, all that you are submitted to him. Is it worth it? And Jesus says, thanks for asking. Point number three following Jesus is totally worth it. And 
Let's let the, let's let the word answer that. Don't just think, oh, of course the pastor would say that. No, no, God's word answers that this morning. Look at verse 25. Right, let me back up to verse 24 to get the running start. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, for, here's why, here's why it's worth it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? There's only two options. If you're an unbeliever here today, I'm so glad you're here. I want you to know there's only two options. We can follow this world and get temporary joy, temporary earthly pleasure, and yet we've lost it all. Or you can follow Christ and gain it all. Jesus tells us that we can we can try to gratify our desires in this world. Yes, there, there are pleasures to be found in this world. It's not that living for the world isn't satisfying. It's that it's not ultimately satisfying. It's not eternally satisfying. You are giving up so much for so little in return. We're, we're, so, we're people that are we're, we're about the quick fix. And that's not just an unbeliever problem. It's Christians, the temptation to take the quick fix over the eternal joy. And so what he's saying here is that you can seek the world, but you're going to lose your soul in the process. You're going to end up in hell forever because you sought temporary joy. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What a question. Jesus is like giving you best case scenario there if you're living for the world right now. Because the lie is, I just don't have enough. Right? If you're seeking out earthly pleasures, you know they're not ultimately satisfying. Like They might be temporarily satisfying, and then there's the conviction, or there's just that, that feeling of dirtiness, or that, or that feeling just of, that didn't last. I, I need that again. And so the temptation is not to rightly think, you know what, maybe this isn't eternally satisfying. Maybe this actually isn't as pleasurable as I thought it was. It, it's, I just haven't got enough. I just need to get more of it. They asked John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? You know what he said? Just one more dollar. He never got to a place of having enough. He said, just give me one more dollar, one more dollar, one more dollar. His point there was that it would never satisfy. And so Jesus just strips you of thinking, well, if you just had more of this world, you'd be okay. Because he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Here, I'll give you the whole world. I'll give you all the earthly pleasures you could ever want. What will it profit you to get that and forfeit your soul? What profit? None. It will not profit you to gain the whole world and then go to hell forever. Charles Spurgeon says the following. Regarding this, between following Christ or following the world, he says, one moment spent in fellowship with Jesus Christ is worth much more than a million years spent in the pursuit and pleasures of this dying world. One moment spent in fellowship with Jesus Christ is worth much more than a million years spent in the pursuit and pleasures of this dying world. Again, one of my great goals for our teens is to understand that it's not joy or Jesus. That's not, the, that's not the option. It's joy in Jesus. Jesus' final reason here for why we should follow him is not just that we will lose our souls if we seek the world. The final reason he says here is that The cost is great, but that he will one day reward us for all that we have done for him. Look at verse 27. Only Jesus can say something like this. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, I want you to know, I purposely... Read Romans 11 for our pastoral welcome because it says in that passage, who, who needs, who, who is, who is it that God would repay? Who deserves 
anything that God would repay them. Nobody, nobody, because God is in, in anyone's debt. And yet we see here that God will reward those who live for his kingdom. I mean, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? We, we don't earn it. The reason we do it is because of his grace, his mercy, his strength. I've, I've never done anything in my own strength. We're like, hey, God, you owe me one there. Right? People at Crossfire sometimes will get the drinks for me and they have their receipts and I, and I owe them because they, they did something for me. God, God never been in my debt. And yet, this is how much God loves his people. This is how gracious he is. He just, he loves to, he loves to give gifts. He, he loves to give blessing. And he's saying here, that he's going to repay each person according to what he has done. Now, if you live for the world, if you live where you're the king, where you're the Lord, he will repay you for that in eternal death. For those of us who have been saved by his grace alone, everything we do he remembers. I mean, there's just probably stuff you have done in serving Christ you've long forgotten about. People you have been a benefit to, people you've prayed for, people you've encouraged, ways you've served. You, you probably forget. God has not. God remembers and he will repay us. Not that we deserve it, not that we're in his debt, but he does reward. And then verse 28, Jesus ends with this promise. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And we'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead with the transfiguration, that, that they're going to see him in his glory. And so here's, here's how I want to end this, this morning. How will you and I respond? If you're not a believer, we would plead with you to see what we said at the very beginning. Look at what Christ has done. Everything centers on Christ. This, this message is not, this, this truth is not, you know, if you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him, Jesus will save you. Come on, try your best. That's not what it's saying. That's why we read the whole passage. Jesus must suffer. And he has suffered. And he has been raised from the dead. And if you repent and trust in him, you will be forgiven, given eternal life. And you get to follow Jesus. For those of us who are his disciples, we have been saved. What does it look like here for us to respond? Where, where in your life, by his grace, are we to, to deny ourselves, to, to take up our cross, to follow him? Where, where are those moments, where, where are those things right now where you're following him, but there's not joy in it? I believe God wants there to be joy in it. Where there, there are things, things some of us can do. Okay, this is what God wants. He's He's sovereignly put this in my life, but I just kind of kick against it. I don't I don't really want to do it. I'll stay here because I know I'm supposed to. But there isn't this joyful following. I think God wants you by the grace of God and the Spirit of God to say, you know what, God, I trust you with that. And and church, I'm speaking to myself with this. I I don't just perfectly serve in every area of my life. I fight against God. I push against God. And is this really the way it's supposed to be? And, and I just need to submit myself. God, your plans are best. God wants us, again, by his grace, to be joyful disciples. To say, you know what? I don't know what's coming next, but he does. I don't know the future, but he does. The one I follow, he's the resurrected Lord. He's the one who knows all things. I think what would you know, bring me sadness. God's grace will cover me. But can you imagine if there's areas in your life that you just, you know God has you serving, but there's not joy there. And you miss God's delight in you serving. You know what I mean by that? Just God looking at you and saying, I'm so glad for where you are in this season. I'm so glad that as my disciple, this is what it looks like to follow me. And, and for me to be kicking against that and God just being there with delight. No, no, son, daughter. This is exactly where you're supposed to be. This is exactly how I want things to be. And you can trust me for the days ahead. That, that's my prayer for this message for me. That I would be a joyful follower of Christ. That I would be an all-in follower of Christ. I don't want to live, lay any of it on the field. You know, me and, and some of my friends, we can, we'll watch, uh, and I'll conclude with this, we'll, we'll watch uh, sports uh, kind of post-conference 
interviews, and we won't, we'll stop listening to them, and we'll start to do all the phrases, but like, oh, I gave 110% today, and, uh, you know, one, one game at a time. I mean, these guys usually just say the same things over and over again. Church, in a very real way, I want to be all in. In a very real way, as a church, may we be all in in following Christ. That there wouldn't be anything we're holding back. That, that we would give 100% to Christ. Not because, because we can earn something, but because he's worthy. Church, what is of greater value than living for Christ? What could you possibly spend your life doing that would be greater than following Christ and being used by Christ in his kingdom for his glory? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we need your grace. Lord, my flesh fights against this. Our sin tempts us to believe that the world is better, to, to feel the, the sacrifice of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and, and saying, God, I don't really want to live like that. Oh Lord, help us to believe that there is no greater joy and delight than following you. No greater way we could spend our lives than being all in. And Lord, help us to do it in response to your love and your grace and the gospel, that, that it wouldn't be about us earning something, but delighting in response to something, Lord. I love Romans 12 because I think about Romans 1 to 11 and gospel, 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 gospel. And then, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. Lord, we want to follow you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who came in as an unbeliever, that they are not following you, would you give them grace right now? Lord, you open Peter's eyes. Would you open their eyes? Lord, you open my eyes. Would you open their eyes to see their sin and to turn away, to repent of it, to see that that, that living for the world ends in destruction, eternal destruction, and that they can come to you and be rescued because you have come towards us. You have lived. You have died. You are raised. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, just give us, give us your grace step by step by step to follow you. But we're amazed that you would reward us, but Lord, it's all about your glory. Lord, we are thankful that you love us. We want to receive your love, receive your, your mercy, but Lord, we want to just to give it right back and say, Lord, you are worthy of everything because you are God and you are good. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I hope you have a wonderful week.